Hi, this is Annalise Lapata, the Assistant Worship Leader of New Life Church. We hope this message propels you to know God more deeply and encourages you to be the hands and feet of Jesus wherever you go. Enjoy the message. So let's take a deep breath, right? And what I want you to do with all that worship, today's main text is 2 Samuel 12, starting in verse 13. So if you're a digital Bible, get your app open. If you're a paper Bible, get that open. 2 Samuel 12, 13 through 23. Unfortunately, I hate to break it to you, we do have a lot of scripture to get through today. Um, but everything else should be on the wall. And if it's not on the wall verse by verse, I will read it out loud to you. And so just get there. And I'd like to just pray over the word and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this group of people that have gathered here today to hear your word. Nobody really cares what the pastor or the preacher has to say. What they care about is that it is applied to them in a way that makes sense to them, that they understand, and that they know this word was written for them. So please open up our eyes to the scriptures today. In Jesus' name, amen. So the big idea of the message is this. We have all sinned against the Lord. We have all sinned against the Lord. And that's a simple statement. It's easy to digest. But the majority of the Christian life is just realizing that we have sinned. And then we're getting into the story of David, and this applies to him too. Even the king must know he has to repent. So what is repentance? The title of today's message is Repentant Heart. Repentance is this, to turn from sin and dedicate oneself to the amendment of one's life to feel regret or contrition, to change one's mind. But we can also define it like this. It just means to turn. To repent is to turn. So last week we talked about King David and his virtuous heart. But this week we're going to talk about what happens when that virtue fails. Last week we praised David for his high moral standards, how he was an honorable man, but today we're going to talk about when those morals collapse on themselves. So we're going to fast forward quite a bit in David's life this morning. Saul has passed away. David has established himself as king. Everything is going well. Israel is defeating all of its enemies. And then things take a turn for the worse. But before we get to that, we have to hit rewind and go way back into Israel's history because it's going to give us some context for what happens to David. So did you know Israel was not supposed to have a king? That wasn't God's original plan for his people. His design was that we would be living in a theocracy, a direct theocracy where God is the king and we live underneath him. Not a monarchy, not a democracy. And a theocracy is much different than the political system that we have today. We don't have a king. We live in a land without a king. So there's a lot of parallels you can draw to the people of Israel when they didn't have a king. And so that period of history, when Israel didn't have a king, we call the time of the judges. And we can sum up the time of the judges like this. The people sin, the people repent. The people sin, the people repent. Up and down, up and down. Virtue and failure. We can sum up the entirety of the book of Judges in one verse. It's the very last verse of that book. 
Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everybody did whatever seemed right to him. But I like the way the ESV translated it a little bit better. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But I think today we even have a better translation in our modern parlance. In those days, the people had no king, but everybody had their own truth. Today, just like the time of the judges, everybody was just doing whatever seemed right to him. We don't have a shared sense of moral virtue anymore. And that's very bad. It's like a boat that's not tied to a dock. It just goes. So what do we do? Doesn't that sound a lot like today? We see the book of the judges in today's culture. What we do is we elect people to judge us and enforce our laws and tell us what our moral virtue should be. But just like in Israel, we're going to see this up and down, up and down, truth and failure. Justice fails away. So how do we get from there to King David? How did the people of Israel end up with their king? Because this is an important part of David's story, but the whole story. 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 5. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. His firstborn son was named Joel, and his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. However, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned toward dishonest profit. They took bribes. They perverted justice. Doesn't that sound like today? So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us, the same as all the other nations have. Israel misunderstood the point of not having a king. They had a king. Their king was God. But in this culture, in the ancient Near East, everybody had a king. But their king was more like a demigod. They actually thought their kings were either completely divine or semi-divine. They were literally idols. So when the people reject God and they say, we want a king to be like everyone else, you need to understand this. That is not a political statement. That is a religious statement. Because these pagan kings, that's what the people of Israel were lusting after. They wanted to install an idol as their king. And these kings in the area, they were into some serious paganism. Not like the cute kind, like tarot cards, like crystals, this kind of thing. We're talking about human sacrifice, blood drinking, sex rituals. This was serious paganism. They even had priests that would read the entrails of dead animals to see if the weather was going to be good and stuff like this. This was sick stuff, but that's what the people were clamoring for. This was a big deal. 1 Samuel 8, 6 through 22, when they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong. So he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord said to him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. 
And then we go down a little bit, and he starts to talk. God tells us what the king can do, the power they were given this man. He can take your best fields, vineyards, olive orchards, give them to his servants. He could take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officials and servants. He can take your male servants, your female servants, your best cattle, your donkeys, and use them for work. He could take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves become his servants. So if you think taxes are high nowadays, this power that they were given the king was immense. But that's what the people wanted. So God said, okay, you have it your way. And that's how they ended up with Saul. And then eventually ended up with David. And now he was installed. But think about the power that people wanted to give a man. Confiscate your property. Take away your daughter. Send your son to a war. Tax you. In a certain sense, the people opted out of living under Yahweh and they exchanged that living God for a small g demigod. Okay? So the people cried out to Samuel, we want a king. And God said, you got it. You've got your king. And I've often wondered if this was like a Romans 1 kind of judgment where sometimes we see that the worst Judgment God can give you in your life is just him stepping back and saying, okay, you have it your way. I had this plan for you, but here goes my restraining hand. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Then they got a king. But the question this morning is this. What happens when the king behaves like that? What happens when the king does what's right in his own eyes? So we're going to fast forward through now. So like we said, Saul is long gone, David's established, and they're marching through these pagan lands, and David is taking care of all these wicked kings. It's almost like Israel was God's pagan removal plan, and he was purging the land of these pagan kings. Things were going pretty good in Israel for a while. Saul is gone, David's here, virtuous man. But now we're going to see where David lets us down. His downfall. His virtue fails him. And I'm going to tell you right now, whether it's in the church, in your home, in your workplace, human leadership is always going to let you down. Every single time. Now, I used to work for a man who said, if you're not making mistakes, you're not working hard. But if you make too many mistakes, you're not working for me. That's what he used to say. And I've thought about that all the time my whole life. And I don't want to, you know, make a joke out of, you know, like these moral failures as being like a mistake. But so we're mortal, we're sinful, we're fallen. Leaders will make mistakes every time. But what's important about a leader is what happens when they let you down? How do they then react to that downfall? 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 5. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a beautiful woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't that Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, and wife of Uriah the Hethite? David sent messages messengers to get her, and when she came, he slept with her. Now, she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. After she returned home, the woman conceived 
and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. So think about this story. One day, David is just strolling around the palace. That's what the scripture says. Like a guy with his hands in his pockets. Like he's just totally bored. He's bored from God sending him out and abolishing his God's enemies. He's bored of the success. And I know we've been talking about how this series is kind of for the guys. And this part is, guys, don't get bored with God's plan for your life. Success is a blessing from God. Don't get bored. Don't be strolling around the rooftop because you can fall into the same trap that David did. What happened to him? This is like HBO stuff. This is a wild mess because all of this happened because David took his eye off of God. He was bored. He did what was wise in his own eyes. So this is a message about repentance. This is a message about David's response to what he did. So that's we had to cover what that bad thing was. So now we're going to get in today's main passage. 2 Samuel 12, starting in verse 13. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So the prophet walks into David right to his face and says, I know what you did. You slept with that woman. He actually sent Uriah to get killed. This was a mess. And David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I own it. Then Nathan replied to David, And the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. Then Nathan went home. The Lord struck the baby that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became deathly ill. David pleaded with God for the boy. He fasted, went home, and spent the night lying on the ground. The elders of the house stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat anything with them. On the seventh day, the baby died. This sin had serious consequences. Could you imagine that because of something you did, your child died? I have a 10-month-old daughter, and I'm sure some of you have been through tragedies like this in this room today, but I couldn't imagine that my child died because of something I did. But we have to ask ourselves too. It says, the Lord struck the child. So what are we to make of that? Are we to make of that that God just like took him out. Now I read the commentaries. I, I, I prayed about this. I decided that I don't actually have the answer for you of what we are to make of that. Whether the child was going to die anyway, God foreknew that it had a sickness, whether he struck the child down. But I think the big thing we have to take away from this is this. As a people, we have become terribly uncomfortable with the sovereignty of God. This was a sovereign act of God. And man, it would be our preference that you know, we could see what God sees, we could hear what God hears, we could, we could foresee like he does. But the fact of the matter is, is despite God's deep love for us, he really doesn't give a rip about how you think history should go. He doesn't. And so when we read these passages like this, we just have to understand that God is sovereign over everything, even illness and death. But we're going to see something later in the passage that 
is going to at least take a little bit of the sting off of having to talk about a dead child on a Sunday morning. David pleaded with God for the boy. He fasted, went home, and spent the night lying on the ground. The elders of his house stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat anything. On the seventh day, the baby died. But David's servants were afraid to tell him the baby was dead. They said, look, while the baby was alive, we spoke to him, and he wouldn't listen to us. So how can we tell him that the baby is dead? He may do something desperate. When David saw that his servants were whispering to each other, he guessed that the baby was dead. So he asked his servants, is the baby dead? He is dead, they replied. Then David got up from the ground. He washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, went to the Lord's house, and he worshipped. Then he went home and requested something to eat. So they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, why have you done this? While the baby was alive, you fasted and wept. But when he died, you got up and ate food. He answered, while the baby was alive, I fasted and wept because I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let him live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will never return to me. So this is just one of those passages that it's like, God, how am I, what am I supposed to teach here, right? We had to address that the child died. But the real thing is David got complacent. He got bored. He took his eye off of God, and he paid dearly for it. Verse 13 says, I have sinned against the Lord. And it also says, and the Lord has taken away your sin. So that's everybody in this room today. I have sinned against the Lord. And you know if you were in Christ, that sin is forgiven. But that doesn't mean that there's not consequences for our actions. So this is why David is such a great study for us in the modern church. When David is confronted with his sin, and he's going through the lowest moment of his life, that's when we see a man after God's own heart. What David does is he repents. He turns. David pleaded with God for the boy, verse 16. He fasted, went home, and spent the night lying on the ground. David did not run. That's the most amazing part of this. The natural man would have flipped the script. God, you did this. God, how could you treat me this way? You took my child away. But this is where we see David's heart of repentance. David pleaded with God for the boy. He fasted, went home, and spent the night lying on the ground. The elders of his house stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat anything with them. David is completely undone by this tragedy, but his response is curious. God told him he would lose his son. What does he do? The passage doesn't say that he runs to his son's side. What it says is he runs right to God. He went home. He fasted. He prayed. Is that what you would do? This was tough for me. Excuse me. When the worst thing possible happens to you is your response to fast and to pray. That's what leadership looks like. When David is at his lowest possible moment in his entire life, he turns back to God. He is a God who is always chasing after God's own heart. David must have been reminded how, even though God told him he would lose his child, how 
Abraham pleaded with God about Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, please, please don't do this. If there's anybody righteous there, don't destroy the city. Moses pleaded with God not to destroy Israel when they were worshiping the golden calf. It's easy to praise God when times are good. But how do we react when times are bad, when we're in the valley, when the worst possible thing you could imagine happens to you? Do you hide from God or do you throw yourself on the ground in repentance? Because I don't. And in David's case, the worst thing does happen. The baby dies. I have never been through a tragedy quite like that. I couldn't imagine. But here is where we see the heart of a king. Verse 20 and 21. Then David got up from the ground. He washed, anointed himself. He changed his clothes. He went to the Lord's house and worshipped. Then he went home and requested something to eat. So they served him food and he ate. His servants asked him, Why have you done this? Well, the baby was alive. You fasted and wept. But when he died, you got up and ate food. Does that even make sense? It almost seems like he has it backward. Because here's what he did in today's terms. The worst thing happened. David got up. He took a shower. He shaved his face. He went to church. He worshiped the Lord. He went home and ate lunch. That's a normal Sunday for me. So, David's response was to throw himself at the sovereignty of God, the will of God, and ask for forgiveness. It's amazing. I pray that when the worst thing happens to me, because it probably will someday, that that is my reaction. And if I don't have the strength to do it, I hope one of my brothers and sisters at church is going to tell me, Michael, get up, shave your face, take a shower, come to church, Worship the Lord, because that is what faith looks like. When your sin is great, do you turn back to God? When your situation is unimaginable, do you turn back to God? Because this situation isn't unique to David. We have all sinned against the Lord. And you might say, I didn't do that. I didn't kill one of my best friends, sleep with his wife, and you know. But we have all sinned against the Lord. And I think we get pretty comfortable nowadays, modern Christians, we read the Bible, and we're like, I would never do that. I would never act like that. I would never sell my Lord out, right? I would never do these things these people do. I would never persecute God's church. But I think we're all guilty of it. If my life was written in this book for all of you to read, I wouldn't pass the purity test. I wouldn't. We're all David. We're all David. We have all fallen short of God's mark. And realistically, much of our prayer life should revolve around what David said in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. This struggle is not unique to him. Here's what Paul says about sin. Romans 7, 18 through 24. For I know that nothing good lives in me. That is my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one who does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. 
This is Paul. So I discovered this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind, and it takes me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. But here's what I want you to focus on. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Paul says, what a wretched man I am. And because I'm a little bit of a nerd, I looked up the etymology of the word wretch because this scripture always stuck with me. And did you know the word wretch comes from the word exile? And so I think that's very appropriate here because when you read it that way, what an exile I am. Because when we sin and we fall short, we are moving farther and farther and farther away from God's design for our life. We are all exiles when we sin. But who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will rescue me from my sin? I think David knew. David turned his face toward God in the hardest moment of his life. And so our working definition of repentance is to turn. So if you sin, you should turn. But that's not really enough. Because if you sin and you turn, and you walk right into another sin, what good does that do? You need to know where to turn to. Turn back to God. David knew where to turn. Another one of my favorite scriptures, Proverbs 26, 11 through 12 says, As a dog returns to its own vomit, so also a fool repeats his foolishness. Do you see a person who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. So repentance isn't so much about what you're turning from, it's who you're turning to. That's the point. But David says this curious thing. Verse 22, the main passage, says, While the baby was alive, I fasted and wept because I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let him live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back? I'll go to him but he will never return to me. I'll go to him. What does that even mean? What does David know? David has hope in the forgiveness of sin. David has hope in the resurrection of the dead. This is a man who has a heart for repentance despite how many times he messed up. 1 Thessalonians 4.13-14 We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. David believed in the promises of God. David believed in heaven. David believed in the resurrection of the dead. He knew his only chance to see his son again, was to turn back to God. And we can't get a sense from the text exactly what David believed about heaven or the resurrection. We actually have something about that in the Rewind, Pastor Dave, something that I believe. But we don't know, we can't get a sense, but we do know for sure David believed if he repented, he would see his son again. And that says so much about David's story for us this morning. Jesus Christ is our hope. 
The forgiveness of our sins is our hope. The resurrection is our hope. Because the fact of the matter is this. Without Jesus Christ, there is no such thing as hope in your life. Without Jesus Christ, David is dead in his sins right now. Without Jesus Christ, he will never see his son again. Without Jesus Christ, you and me, we're just like David. 1 Corinthians says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. I don't think we can read this verse enough in church. If Jesus Christ did not walk out of that tomb, your life is a cosmic accident. If he didn't walk out of the tomb, all of this is pointless. All of it. Jesus Christ didn't walk out of the tomb, you're likely in some kind of weird cult. Jesus Christ didn't walk out of the tomb, you're better off at brunch than here. Honestly, that sounds nice. If Jesus Christ didn't walk out of the tomb, David never sees his son again. Jesus Christ didn't walk out of the tomb. What David did to Uriah wasn't even wrong. Like, do you, bro? What's wrong with that? If Jesus Christ didn't walk out of the tomb, King David is just another pagan king doing whatever he wanted, whatever was wise in his own eyes. That's the truth. But David had a heart and a hope in heaven. We have all sinned against the Lord. All of us. I'll probably do it 10 minutes after I walk out of here. But here's the thing. In Jesus Christ, we have a path out, a path forward. In Jesus Christ, we have the hope for the forgiveness of our sins. In Christ Jesus, we have a hope in a resurrection. We have a hope that when we mess up, we have a place to turn. In Christ Jesus, we know that when that worst possible thing you could ever imagine comes at you in your life, there is a God who loves you, who died for you, and is going to resurrect you someday. In Christ Jesus, we have a hope in heaven. Because I think we all know this isn't our home. This, what do they call it, this mortal coil. We have longings for things that this world cannot satisfy. And this is what C.S. Lewis said. He said, that must mean we're destined for another place because we can almost taste heaven on this side of it. But when this fallen world throws sin and death and suffering at you, remember Jesus Christ defeated it all, all of it. So if you hear anything that I say this morning, I want you to remember this. When the world throws the worst thing at you, you do not have to react like someone who doesn't have any hope. My hope is in Jesus Christ. And there was a time in my life where I couldn't put my hand up and I couldn't say that. And I hope your hope is in Jesus Christ this morning. Because those things I said, I, I believe it. I stand by it. If, if your hope is not in Jesus Christ, live, eat, and drink. There's no hope for you. But if Jesus Christ is not your hope right now, it is not too late. After service, if you want to come talk to me about my hope, I will share it with you. And I hope that we can get to a place where he's your hope. But I don't want you to walk out of that door today knowing the truth. I'm going to tell you the truth whenever I can, the best that I can, 
If Jesus Christ is not your hope, it's all over for you. Not right now. There's obviously hope to find him, but you really want to take a chance? My friend John in the back, he used to say, don't miss the bus. You know, when you're a kid, you run into the bus stop, you miss the bus. I don't want that to be you. When Jesus Christ is your hope, you don't have to go through the hard times in this world like everybody else. It will hurt, but you have hope. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. And that is the story of David this morning. Amen. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this group of people that have gathered here to hear your word today. Lord, I pray that their hope is in heaven, that their hope is in the resurrection, that everyone in this room will put their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want to suffer like the rest of the world. We don't want to do what is wise in our own eyes anymore, God. We know that you have given us a place to turn back to, something to fix our eyes on, God. So let it be true of New Life Church and everyone within the sound of my voice that they put their faith, hope, and trust in the Lord Jesus. I pray that everyone has a wonderful week, safe travels home, and I thank you for letting me speak in the church this morning. We love you, Jesus. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To learn more about New Life Church, check out our website at discovernewlife.org.